Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned punter Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Then, when we get in this show in 2015, the first topic of discussion was a second division and the journey towards promotion and relegation. So, like everyone else in football in this country, it's as much with relief as any other emotion that Football Australia has announced the founding clubs for the inaugural national second tier set to commence in March or April 2025. The NST will include five teams from New South Wales and three from Victoria. Football Australia will then select an additional two to four clubs through a refined application process. Obviously, they'll come from other states around the country with two competition formats under consideration for the inaugural season. A 10-team competition with two rounds plus finals or a 12-team competition with two rounds plus a finals series. But we'll get through all of this and flesh out the story over the coming months. In the meantime, we're going to celebrate and talk to the chairman of one of the successful clubs, South Melbourne's Bill Papastogiatis, to get a sense of his club's reaction and what the next steps look like around planning. Then the ripple effects of the Everton points deduction are vast. Is this a power move by the Premier League against a financially stricken club, a canary down the coal mine before they go after the big dogs? in particular Manchester City and Chelsea. To get his thoughts, we'll talk to Paul Joyce from The Times, who wrote an excellent article dissecting the story and just what it means. Edge, it's a red-letter day for football in this country. I know you're going to expand on this further later in the week in stoppage time, because as you do, you've already sort of looked a couple of steps down the track and some of the you know the granular stories and, and other elements of, uh, of what we need to be seeing. But it's a day of celebration, surely, particularly when we're seeing clubs, uh, age-old clubs in this country, taking their, their rightful seat back at the top table. Yeah, Rob, I think you hit the nail on the head, but it's probably more relief than celebration for me. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this every second or third show since 2015 when we started the, pro- the project Box to Box. So it's been a long time coming, but yeah, it's, it's a good... At least we know in 2025 there'll be a national second division. There's still a lot to work out, but let's just celebrate the moment. For South Melbourne, it's a big achievement, no doubt about it. You know, they... Um, out of all of the old national... Uh, league club South Melbourne's probably the club that's most hard done by. Um, there is a fair opinion that suggests they should have been put in rather than Western United um, into the A League, and I think um, history might have proven that opinion to be worthy. Having said all of that, it's a great day for South Melbourne. We'll talk to Bill in a moment, but what about the Socceroos, Rob? Are we going to start just celebrating the seven magnificent goals against Bangladesh? We're off and running in the World Cup qualifiers. Yeah, no, look, I thought it was magnificent. I said last week I was going out there and it was a great crowd of 20,000. I think uh, just about every Bangladeshi in Melbourne was uh, was there and probably a few from interstate had travelled down as well. Uh, they didn't disgrace themselves either. I thought they they were um, they were worthy opponents and, uh, and they showed enough. I think they need to find a big few tall uh, uh, expats, um, you know, some uh, big lanky um, Scotsman somewhere, uh, similar to Harry Sutar, who's got a long lost grandfather who, who once maybe transited through Bangladesh in, the, in his travels because that was probably one of their biggest problems. But they certainly played football and um, and they were capable. But um, I think um, Graham Arnold had really set the, uh, the Socceroos up um, beautifully and, 
and they did exactly what they needed to do. It could have been more, but I think uh, uh, the the Bangladeshis uh, did well. But I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about this in a moment. But uh, Derek, the the other big story as we welcome you to the show. Um, is the Everton points deduction. Uh, we'll talk to Paul Joyce about that. But uh, uh, did we, we heard a lot of talk about something like this happening, but did we really expect it to happen? We were joking about it on the show last week, weren't we? Our, uh, Everton, I think, were my team of the week, and we said that they were looking up the table, not down the table. Well, they're looking up the table now because they've gone right down the bottom of it with this mm. uh, 10 points uh, deduction. And I'm looking forward to... Uh, our chat because there's a lot more that meets the eye here. Um, but look, I, I've had a look at the some of the findings of the report myself. I, I feel like Everton are clutching straws with a couple of their arguments as to why they needed to be exempt from some of the uh, s- some of the charges or why their accounts looked the way they did. They cited COVID. They cited transfers that went wrong outside their control. And look, it's opened up a Pandora's box, really, because once again, you know, whether ever, you know, if, if, if this stays, Everton, um, obviously, they've, they've got some points to catch up. Obviously, there'll be plenty of other teams now upset because it's affected positions uh, in this, not this, this season, but other seasons as well. So we can maybe unpack that with Paul to go, what's the butterfly effect here mm. from this? Because it's not just going to be contained to Everton, that's for sure. Yeah, no, no. We've seen this happen um, in other sports um, around the world, and uh, and and once you you do um, open up that can of worms, uh, you, you where, where do you stop? Uh, and because uh, you know who, who is Lily White um, in, in this world of sport, um, and and how much punishment do you dole out? Um, but that'll be interesting to talk to Paul about it. Well, let's get stuck into the news and the story that we led with uh, that eight semi-professional clubs are one step closer to a place in the A-League men's competition after Football Australia announced the makeup of the national second division starting in 2025. The new league will consist of at least 10 teams and eight foundation teams, which include South Melbourne, Preston Lions, Sydney Olympic, Sydney United, Marconi Stallions, Wollongong Wolves and New South Wales Premiers, Apia Leichhardt, as well as Avondale, who won the Victorian state title for the first time in September. Now, as I mentioned off the top, we'll be talking to the chairman of one of the most successful clubs, Bill Papastogiatis from South Melbourne, as soon as you get it. Just a sense of what, what club land really means. But I mean, without talking too much around football and very briefly, it's because we're going to talk to Bill about it and uh, and you are going to expand on it later. But but um, as somebody who grew up in that very heartland of football and and loved so many and continue to love other sports. Um, is, is this something that as a young boy uh, playing football, a young teenager, that, that you um, you hoped and realistically believed that um, that some of these foundation clubs would, would sit along the side of, of the, the, the other uh, clubs that, um, that take most of the media space in, in other sports in this country? Well, I mean, I grew up in the in the National Soccer League era, so you know, my club Heidelberg were participating at the top level. Um, I guess the 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 earthquake in the sport when the old National Soccer League was shut down, and then uh, under the administration of Sir Frank uh, Lowy, that they um, rebooted the A League, and all of the um, you know uh, migrant community clubs were were cast adrift. Uh, that was a very difficult time. So. Um, and there was a period of silence when it was almost like, don't mention the war, you know, it was mm. like, uh, mm. don't criticise the Pope, um, because there was a lot of people at the time that were feeling like um, the strategy was the wrong strategy under John O'Neill and Frank Lowy. And this has taken a long time uh, 
to attempt to heal those wounds, and this is what this is. I think um, I'll talk about it more in, in stoppage time, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of what it means in terms of the migrant clubs getting an opportunity uh, in the national second tier and hopefully within some sort of reasonable time frame, mm. uh, a promotion and relegation linked to the A-League. But I am, I'll just leave you with this comment, Rob. I am a little bit disturbed when, you know, the front, the front internet story of um, the ABC sport is not uh, about the announcement. It's about the Sydney United 58 has been included and they were the club that was... Uh, admonished for fans um, doing Nazi salutes at that um, FA Cup final two, if, if Australia Cup final two years ago. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's the old. It's hard to f- forget um, the uh, trouble that the, some of these um, um, some of these you know um, culturally um, community clubs uh, can get themselves into, um, and there'll be a bit of this. Uh, pushback on on this announcement no doubt in the coming days yeah yeah there, there will be and um and you know hey uh, the the abc do like to to point the finger at other media outlets for for, for being shock jocks and all the rest of it but uh, uh whilst this is a legitimate storyline around the conversation and has been well and truly publicized both within the football media and outside of it um there is a time and a place for presenting information and news and to suggest that a club like that uh, is solely uh, populated with people who represent those abhorrent views um, is equally offensive because uh, the the people of of that great nation um, have have a vast majority of of clean living quality people that 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 would um, uh, be just as offended by the behavior as anybody else edge um, okay, so uh, on to the Everton story briefly. I know we're going to expand upon it again soon when we talk to Paul Joyce from The Times, but shockwaves have gone through the Premier League as a result of the FA bringing down the hammer on Everton with the immediate 10-point penalty dropping them to equal last on the ladder and facing a dogfight to avoid relegation ahead of their move to Bramley Moore Dock for the 24-25 season. The docking of 10 points is the heaviest punishment ever handed to a side in the English top flight for breaching financial rules, which stipulates that clubs are allowed to lose a maximum of £105 million over three years. The commission found that Everton overreached their allowed losses by £19.5 million. Now, Derek, you and I were chatting about this uh, uh, off um, the uh, the record, or it wasn't off the record, so to speak, as we were preparing for the show, and, and you were speculating on the multiple um, that, of points that, Manchester City would have docked uh, if the accumulated losses that we already read about. And and it was a ridiculous number. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a, a point per charge, isn't it? So, um, yeah, Man City's facing down 130 charges. They, they have been charged. This is opposed to Chelsea, who have, have sort of self-referred themselves, I think, in the hope of trying to avoid a Everton-type scenario. Um, but yeah, look, where where does it end with with Manchester City in, in this whole thing? Uh, you know, it'll have, I, I think it'll have to end with titles being stripped, won't it, Derek? It'll have well, to. I mean, I think that's the butterfly I was I was talking about earlier, Edge, because like, where where does it end? Like, yeah, Arsenal fans, Liverpool fans on social media is calling for for City to be stripped of titles, stripped of points for this season, and what league tables being clubs? redone. The relegated clubs, the clubs that finished 14th, but they could have finished a bit higher and they've missed out on 2 million. So I think it's been a really, it's a really interesting time for the Premier League. And 
you know, I've I, I have this view that the Premier League, it's not its business to, for want of a better phrase, piss off the other Premier League clubs because you've got European Super League and you've got World Super League uh, all hanging over the Premier League. So actually punishing clubs is probably the, la- the last thing that they want to do. And I've speculated with Rob off at Mike that maybe it was easier to do it to, to Everton. They don't have the higher paid lawyers um, compared to, say, City or, or Chelsea. Um, but, yeah, like it's, it's just interesting that they would, they would do this and do this now. They've just been accused in the King's speech or the King's speech has suggested that a higher level of regulation um, might be needed for the Premier League. A lot of conspiracy theorists out there saying, um, you know, is this just them trying to rebut that and say, no, we can keep our own house in order. But yes, the, the Bombay butterfly effect, mm-hmm. or Beijing butterfly effect, certainly uh, this could go on and on and on, I reckon. Mm, yeah, I think it will. We'll talk about that with Paul Joyce from the Times uh, uh, and not too far away. On the park with no games in the domestic leagues around the world over the weekend due to the international break. The highlight, of course, from an Australian point of view was the aforementioned Socceroos win over Bangladesh, 7-0. Jamie McLaren left the pitch with his hat-trick game ball. And while they conceded seven, the visitors were far from disgraced in uh, that crowd of 20,000 plus, well represented, as we mentioned earlier, by the local Bangladeshi community. Now, internationally, Italy had to scrap to beat a North Macedonia side who never know when they're beaten. Comfortably in front, 3-0 at the break after Euro 2021 hero Federico Chiesa netted a first-half double. The Lynxes hit back with a brace of their own in the second to Jan Antasanov to set up a nail-biting final 20 minutes before goals to Raspadori and El Shawari settled nerves at the Stadio Olimpico. In other results, France belted Gibraltar 14-0. Kylian Mbappe scored a hat-trick with nine different players on the score sheet. 16 of the 24 teams that will contest next summer Euros in 2024, of course, are now known after the Netherlands, Romania and Switzerland secure their places with a game to spare on Saturday. Now, these are some topics which we are going to flesh out in stoppage time a little, but the one that most caught my eye other than the Italy match, which I got up uh, on Saturday morning and watched, was the friendly uh, that hosts Germany. Still in a world of pain, um, Julian Nagelsmann's era got off to a good start in the States against um, against Mexico and, and Americans, but they had a serious wobble um, with a 3-2 loss to Turkey. Uh, now, Kai Havertz uh, put the manship after a goal to the good just five minutes in, but the Turks, who have already qualified for the Euros... That, well, they were very sharp. Uh, they had thousands of fans. There were apparently three million Turkish people or, or the Turkish diaspora in Berlin uh, uh, making the Berlin Olympia study on their own. And uh, one of the three Italian coaches already qualified to attend the Euros, Vincenzo Montella's men, they were well-deserved winners, leaving the Germans with more questions than answers. Uh, uh, so, Derek, uh, Germany, uh, they... Uh, Unlike Italy, they did go to the last two World Cups, but when they got there, um, they uh, were very un-German and couldn't get out of the group. And um, and this uh, this effort against Turkey gives you no confidence that whether it was under Yogi Lowe or Hansi Flick and now Julian Nagelsmann that um, that the uh, the Germans can rely on them to put in a what we used to think was a typically German powerhouse kind of performance. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a huge game. I think you called it. You know, this isn't just Germany-Turkey. I mean, this is, you know, a very, very significant fixture, particularly for the for the for the Turkey um, side of things. But as you said, um, they they do have a um, some work to do to, to turn it around to 
to be what, amongst the favourites. You wouldn't put them amongst the favourites uh, at the moment. It is definitely a team in flux right now. It isn't the kind of uh, that classic Germany era. A lot of those players have, have moved on. I think they look a little weak in the middle of defence, which is usually where Germany uh, are really strong. I'm not sure about Branson. Full Krug up front doesn't strike me as vintage German um, attacking options. Obviously, they do have loads on the bench. Goretzka, Nabry, uh, Hummels, I know it's Muller. Obviously, the eternal Muller uh, is always there, but obviously in the, the you know the November of his career. So, yeah, I mean, they've, they've shuffled the deck and, and the results seem the same. So, I mean, yes, they'll have home advantage, but I don't think you can put them amongst the, the top, top favourites for... The Euros, I think you probably put them in the next, the next, uh, the next group down, and you're looking to the likes of um, England and um, and France in particular to to to, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now um, in South America, now we, we won't expand on this right now because uh, we're just going to ask you to to uh, to tune into stoppage time later in the week because Edge has got these um, games set aside to to really sink his teeth into it because he is a South American ophile. Um, as the great Johnny Warren was, uh, because uh, there, there were two huge results um, in World Cup qualifying over the weekend. I love the fact that Marcelo Bielsa managed to engineer a 2-0 win for Uruguay over uh, his homeland in Buenos Aires with uh, Darwin Nunes, uh, very excited to score the, uh, the sealer. And then Luis Diaz celebrating the release of his father with a double for Colombia to knock off Brazil and leave them, Michael, languishing. Lucky they've got six automatic qualifying spaces these days. Imagine if the Brazilians didn't qualify, they're languishing in fifth spot right now. Well, they are um, they are sort of going through a transitional phase, Brazil, to try and reboot after a very disappointing 2022 World Cup in Qatar. But, yeah, it was all emotion in, in uh, Colombia, wasn't it, uh, Diaz's? with his parents in the grandstand, and uh, he scored a double to um, give the Columbia a come-from-behind win. So, epic mm. match. I'll talk about that in more in stoppage mm. time. And what mm. about um, Uruguay crossing the River Plate yeah. and just smacking Argentina for their first loss since the World Cup uh, on, on their home deck? That is a big result. Mm. And um, Uruguay got a second place on the table now uh, mm. in the uh, World Cup qualifying for South America. Uh, Argentina is still on top, but a huge win for Bielsa. We'll talk about that in stoppage time, but yeah, very emotional times uh, in Colombia, Rob. Really That's emotional it. times in Colombia. No, absolutely. Looking forward to that conversation uh, in a few days' time. Now, uh, soccer is a Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. The AFC Asian Cup kicks off in mid-January. Register your interest. The early bird booking list will be closing soon, so don't miss out. Get your opportunity to book at the best price in advance of the retail launch. GGAarmy.com.au is where you need to go. Uh, now, no club football for the men this week, and we've covered the Socceroos win against Bangladesh already. Meanwhile, Tony Gustafsson has named his 23-player squad to face Canada in a two-match series in December. Their final internationals for 2023. Uh, an underutilised member of the Matildas World Cup squad was, uh, to many, unexpectedly left out. Uh, Alex Chidiak, uh, due to a lack of game time at her, her club uh, in Mexico. Now, making room for uh, striker Charlie's rule, fellow forward Holly McNamara and defender Ivy Lewick to return to the squad. So, Edge, are you happy with that squad? I guess it suggests that, you know, squads are limited, um, as expanded as they are these days. But uh, but uh, it, is it good news to have talent like uh, um, Alex Chidiak uh, uh, that we can actually leave out um, to, to bring others in? 
Well, she's um, it's disappointing for Chidiak. She's one of our very, very good prospects, and um, a lot of people think that she may or should have uh, had a little bit more time at the recent World Cup. Um, however, that's not to be. She's been left out. She'll be bitterly disappointed about that, but she needs to get her club arrangements sorted out, um, whether she can get back to Australia and mm. uh, get back into the A-League to get some visibility. Um, she's just not playing over there in America, and obviously mm. their National Women's Soccer League season has concluded. Uh, Charlie Rule, who um, is really making some good headway for Brighton and Hove Albion uh, in the Women's Super League. She's had a very good start to the season. Everyone sort of questioned whether she was ready to make the transition to the Women's Super League, but she's uh, had some good performances and mm-hmm. she's uh, got her first opportunity in the squad um, and she's been playing as a right back. Um, big, tall girl, very athletic and uh, always had a lot of a lot of potential and um, mm-hmm. she gets her opportunity. Ivy Lewick, um, the, the evergreen, she's back in... Uh, back in contention uh, in the squad. Um, so, yeah, those two people in particular will be pretty happy. Yeah, that'll be massive watching those last two games of the year as we uh, get ready to uh, to go through the final stages of qualification for the Paris Olympics next year. All right, lots more news at the ggatravel.com.au website. So as much as you want to register your interest to travel, uh, there's always great news on the Socceroos and the Matildas when you visit the website. Uh, always updated on a regular basis and uh, you'll find out where... Every Matilda and Socceroo is at their club and what they're doing, whether they were on the park for 90 minutes or whether they sat on the bench, you'll find it all there at the, the ggatravel.com.au website. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. Really looking forward to our next conversation. It's been a few years since we've spoken to Bill Papastergiatis because the last time we talked to him, it was about the very same subject or at least similar to um, when South Melbourne were bidding to become one of the expansion clubs in the A-League. It didn't happen then, but now they're a guaranteed a spot in the national second tier. So stick around. After the break, we're going to talk to Bill and find out a little bit about the excitement down in South Melbourne as a representative of uh, of all of the other clubs who are part of this expansion. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box, and as I said off the top of the show, it is a red letter day in Australian football as we record the announcement that the national second tier will commence in March, April 2025. Has been made. Back in 2015 when we first started this podcast well it had already been a long conversation at that point but the very first topic of discussion on the show was the second division, the journey towards promotion and relegation and one of the very early guests we had back on in early 2016 was our very next guest and we welcome him back to the show the chairman of one of the iconic football clubs in this country Bill Papastergiadis from South Melbourne. Bill, welcome back to Box to Box mate. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I actually remember that interview. Um, it was one of my first interviews, too, um, in relation to the A-League bid that we were sort of um, fermenting and putting through the process. And, um, you know, that wasn't exactly our field of dreams, um, that process. But I think today does deliver um, does deliver some of the results we were chasing back then, absolutely. Yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? And... Uh, um the, uh, the opportunity, and, and South Melbourne represents uh, in this conversation, at the very least, uh, the, those very dreams that 
the supporters and fans who, who who built the foundations of football in this country because I'm certainly one of the people that um, that agrees with the theory that when the A-League was started that the baby was thrown out with the bathwater, uh, that we, we offended and set back the cause of football in a lot of ways uh, in as much as we advanced it in others and that this decision now sets that position back on the journey to, well, you know, reconciliation might not necessarily be the word, but hey, it's uh, as close a word to, to describing um, many people's feelings on the subject. I think that's right. Um, we, we did see when 2004, um, well, in 2004, that many dreams were crushed by the announcement to not allow clubs that were foundation members of our precursor to the A-League, that is the National Soccer League, not being allowed to bid for the A-League or denied entry into it. And then the... Um, decision to make the A-League a closed competition and not allowing promotion and relegation, which Dwight York recently commented that, you know, talent in Australia is being killed by the system. And what he meant by that was that, you know, the A-League is in a comfort zone and there's no relegation. And that has a double effect, not only in terms of, you know, the, um, the interest in the competition, which we've seen dwindle in recent times, but also in terms of providing the opportunities for players at a number of levels to compete professionally and then to chase their own dreams, either domestically or internationally, because we haven't seen, as we saw in the 90s and early 2000s and late 80s, the number of footballers making it in top-tier football Mm. from Australia in Europe. Now, there was a, a plethora of numbers that we had back then, Um, I'm hoping by the creation of this second tier that we professionalise football um, in this competition, that is the national second tier, and through that professionalism, uh, we create pathways for footballers not only into the A-League but abroad, and then we create pathways for administrators, we create pathways for other professionals involved in the sport, whether it's in health and science, etc., and we, you know, triple um, the participation of capable people and, you know, help them further their own careers in the football pyramid that exists in this country, which it hasn't been a pyramid because of the, the ceiling, but hopefully it will be. And I think that one of the final words by, by Johnson today was that he expects there to be promotion and relegation with the A-League. He does expect mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's probably the most exciting subtext of the of the whole conversation. I know Edge is going to talk to you about uh, other elements of the structural nature of uh, of the financial uh, piece that comes with this, the the depth of footballers where we bring them in. But as let's say, I, I, I consider myself to be somewhat of a of a of a the voice of the fan in the stands on many occasions on this show, and what I love most about the the re um, Emergence, um, not that these mega clubs in Australia ever went away, but their 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 presence back in the, the top table and very close to that top tier, and hopefully that promotion and relegation comes sooner than later. But um, the theatre that clubs like South Melbourne, like Marconi, like Arpia, um, etc., Preston Macedonia, bring to the game that that natural theatre that we've been missing uh, from a lot of the A League football that that it's going to just naturally present itself at some of these games. And as it evolves into promotion and relegation, it will build into the A-League. Is, is that something that, that you're anticipating, Bill? 
Oh, absolutely. And and that was really the the position behind our earlier bid that wasn't successful and that Western United one was that it was all about passion and diversity and history and tradition, things that a franchise can't buy. And you, you can't create that tradition and history overnight. It comes with decades and dec- decades of work both on and off the field. You know, everyone participates in this journey and there are many heroes um, during this process. And, you know, I, my phone has you know, rung hot all day in anticipation of and then with the announcement of, you know, the foundation clubs and, you know, we we are, you know, looking forward to hearing, smelling through the, the cuisine that um that these clubs will bring also to our stadiums. Mm-hmm. Um, the passion of, you know, the tradition of these clubs, um, which is rich and which is colourful and which is cultural and which is part of our multicultural of the multicultural fabric of this country. Our country is built on this. And it's good to see that football is now embracing it. Bill, it's an exciting day because we learnt two sort of um, immovable facts today, and that was that it will kick off in 2025 and it will be a winter competition. I just want you to reflect on, uh, firstly for me, the decision to play the national second tier in the winter and not in the summer. Um, it's been received, it's been a little bit of a mixed a mixed response from fans on social media today, but what's your personal opinion about playing in the winter versus the summer? Uh, I did. I do think there's a lot more competition in the winter, but what do you think? I would prefer, I mean, if it was up to me, we'd play on Mars just to get our foot in the door. Um, so that doesn't trouble us significantly in terms of the, the season for the competition. Our preference would be summer. That's my own personal preference but we could play anytime, anywhere, just give us the chance. Um, and so I'm not, not particularly troubled by that aspect of it, no. Um, and in terms of the, the kickoff 2025, um, it was there was a little bit of talk a few months ago that it might have been next uh, year, 2024, but um, how does South Melbourne feel about uh, the time frame leading up to a kickoff in March or April of 2025? Look, we need to respect Football Australia's um, program in terms of aligning its commitment to the growth and the promotion of the game in terms of embracing additional teams firstly um, because it, it hopes to refine this application process in the next few months so that um, it incorporates teams as we saw today. I think Brisbane United indicated that they must be in this competition. We've heard a lot about Hobart as well being in the competition so that it, it's truly a national competition. So we need to respect their work in increasing the numbers to 10 to 12, firstly. And then secondly, we need to also understand how they will be packaging, um, and which is important for us, uh, this new competition as part of the men's, our international men's and women's competitions, et cetera, um, in, the, in the media deals that are being put together. So those things suggested to us that we need to be a little bit patient we were ready to start yesterday. We would have been happy to start in 24. I think quite a lot of the clubs were happy to start in 24, but there are um, significant reasons for the basis for this decision. So we're, we're happy and, and we accept those. 
And obviously, you alluded to it there. There in the initial foundation club announcement, no team from Western Australia, no team from South Australia, no team from Tasmania, and no team from Queensland. There's obviously been flagged that uh, up to four more teams could be announced during 2024 for the start of the competition. I mean, um, why? In uh, what's the reason we didn't have any teams announced from? Uh, states outside of New South Wales and Victoria. I can't answer that. That's that's a that's a difficult question because I would need to step into the shoes of other clubs and administrators and understand what it is they're experiencing and going for at the moment. I would suspect that whenever uh, these types of competitions are put together and we're assembling clubs, it requires a strategic plan to be put in place over a number of years to get the club game ready both on and off the field. And um, and because the conversation in regards to the formation of this second tier has been a relatively recent one, it may not have afforded clubs interstate um, that may not have had the depth of competition uh, in their own domestic uh, state leagues to be able to plan, um, develop and also remunerate and um, buttress the club financially to make the next move. So I'm not too concerned by this because I believe that over a short period of time, that eight will become 16 and it will po- will be populated from clubs around Australia, um, generating significant interest from sponsors and crowds as well. So uh, I think it's a matter of time rather than anything else. And... Um... If you can clarify a point for us, it was discussed in a press conference, but it, it assume, it's, it's assumed that uh, all of the clubs participating in the national second tier will retain their positions in the NPL competitions. So to clarify that, that means that South Melbourne will have a team in the national second tier, but also playing in NPL one. Is that correct? I believe so. That's my understanding. And, and I think it makes sense because you need to have players that can step in um, uh, into the competition. I mean, an under-23 competition would probably not be sufficient to have ready-made players for a, you know quite a physical game, which we play in this country. Um, so the anticipation is that similar to what the A-League has, um, you would have uh, the teams that are putting their hand up for the National Second Division, or actually the Foundation Clubs, being in one of the tiers, the MPL um, or the VPL as it's called, I think parts of it now in Victoria, being in that competition and also continuing to have your under 23. I mean, what we want to do is create more opportunity for footballers. And I think also the other clubs um, in the MPL and the VPL would want to be playing against South Melbourne as well. So I think that works both ways and it would be something that we definitely want. We've been um, discussing it and we'll be pushing very hard for it. Within the eight announced uh, clubs, there's some pretty significant rivalries up in Sydney. Sydney Olympic and Sydney United, uh, they have great rivalry, as do Arpia, Leichhardt and Marconi. And in Victoria, um, South Melbourne and Preston Lions goes back a long time. There's some great rivalries, but... You're going to miss two of your most significant rivalries, one that captures the imagination of the Victorian football public a lot, and they were alluded to by um, uh, Paramount Plus's Teo Palazira. He made the point that it would be the first time in South Melbourne's history that at least you weren't going to play in a competition against the Melbourne Knights 
or Heidelberg United, two of your most significant foes. Are you going to miss them? Oh, absolutely, I'm going to miss them. They're also good friends off the field. I mean, on the field, we're bitter rivals, as we know. But off the field, you know, we have a great relationship with the presidents of both clubs, Telekutis and Pave. I think Pave's stepped down recently. Um, but they've been generous, supportive, you know, in the NPL competition post the NSL. Um, we want them there. They need to be there. Um, and, you know, we can't force them to be in, but I suspect they'll be looking at this competition closely and, um, you know, making appropriate decisions as and when required. But, you know, they are an important part of the matrix and the fabric of football in this state and in this country, as are many other clubs. You know, like Oakley has been now during the NPL, uh, a fierce rival of South Melbourne and brings a lot to the game. So there's a lot to be said of other clubs. And one of, one of the interesting things that will come out of this competition is the fact that there will be promotion and relegation through the MPL process, through the MPL um, program, um, after a period of time, and that's important, and we want that. Providing those clubs meet the criteria, we want teams to be investing in football, and not to be casual or comfortable in sitting in another close-tier uh, competition. We don't want that. South doesn't want that, and that wasn't the style that Ange Postecoglou played um, or coached when he was at South Melbourne. And nor is it the style that he's exhibiting in Tottenham. It's one that which is take it, take your um, opponents on. Absolutely. Well, it's very exciting. I think one of the big structural ticks was um, the announcement by James Johnson that the Foot Federation would include the national second tier in uh, their broadcast rights that they were taking to market beyond 2024. I think that's in, it's a very exciting development. Um, it wasn't necessarily a cash play, but it was definitely a, a, a play on reach and development. I think that's a, a very exciting development for the National Second Tier Bill. Um, so what are you looking for, forward to the most? I mean, what, what can you tell South Melbourne fans who listen to us regularly? What are you, looking, you personally looking for the most out of, out of this announcement? For me, it's about nurturing our talent, engaging with our communities, um, elevating the football to another level for us, giving opportunities to all of our players and administrators, and then, and then the buzz of being at a sold out or full ground, full of spectators who are chanting and cheering and wanting the best for their team and inspiring their players. I can't wait. You can't buy that experience it's you know when either you live it or you don't um we've been starved of it unfortunately as south supporters but that time is fast approaching and i can't wait oh, well neither can we mate i was listening to you talking and, and alluding a little to some of our off-air conversation about those uh, uh those cuisines as well as the football <laughs> the park that we're going to get to uh, enjoy when the clubs come back. Everyone loves a 4 and 20 pie. You know, we're not denying our Aussie heritage, but, uh, uh, you know, there's nothing like, um, you know, some, some of that, that food that you get at the... Such a quality food wouldn't go down too bad, wouldn't it? It would be quite good or a, 
bit of bit of tzatziki on on the side, and a, and a Greek salad at our grounds at the Italian grounds. You'll have their cuisine too. It's good for the country. Yeah, and my good friend uh, Zlatan Angelovsky, that he was very very happy that Breast and Macedonia are, are, are in. He uh, was a bit disappointed that the Italians uh, got the better of him on Saturday morning, but uh, uh, he's, he's super excited. <laughs> and there's one thing I, I noticed that you, you sort of uh, uh, you you alluded to uh, one of the the final questions that I had up my sleeve. Uh, uh, and why would you not uh, mention, well, probably the proudest son of uh, of uh, South Melbourne, um, Ange Postacoglu, and um, and his work. So, you know, we obviously can't let you go without letting you expand a little on on just how proud the club must be. Um, you know, he learnt uh, his trade, obviously, from his father at the club uh, under the, the watchful eye of the great Ferenc Pushkas, whose statue sits at the back of Amy Park right now, and who I, which I walked past and that shrine there. But to talk, give us your thoughts, you know, and share the um, the pride that uh, that the club and uh, and the, the local football community feels in uh, in what Andrew's doing in the Premier League. I mean, that's a great question, and um, and it's a terrific observation because when you hear Ange talk regularly in England, he makes a reference to the formative years at South Melbourne Hellas. And, you know, it must puzzle a lot of people around the world because, you know, he has become a bit of a global superstar in football. Um, and it must puzzle people to hear, who's South Melbourne Hellas? I mean, who, where is this club? I mean, you know, they'd, they'd be looking it up and they wouldn't be able to find it in the A-League. And it's a regular part of his conversation and his narrative and his understanding of himself. I mean, I... I was at university with Ange. We hung out together. We played football at the university together. Um, you know, we were, we were very tired for a period of time. And, you know, the first game that I remember being with him the Friday before his first game um, for South, I think he was about 19 then, 18 or 19, the excitement in his eyes for playing for the club that he had always dreamt of playing for was extraordinary and you know that's what we want to see again you want to see you know the eyes wide up you know widen up and um for our young players and to really feel ambitious and proud of their clubs and and that's what Angie is he's proud of his club um you know and you couldn't ask for more yeah no well said bill and uh, and it does go back to to that very uh First question that, that we we talked about in this conversation, and that is that uh, um, that the baby thrown out with the bathwater. I mean, this is the very baby that we're talking about, isn't it? The fact that uh, that this uh, element of our our multicultural diaspora creating football in this country was disregarded, and that is how people felt. Um, I'm I'm married to an Italian girl whose father uh, was from. Uh, the north of Italy, but migrated to Australia, worked on the tobacco farms of northeastern Victoria. Uh, he, he watched football from the sidelines of the Savoy Club up in Myrtleford. Every bit as proud of the Italian heritage of that club in that country town as anyone anywhere in the world was and continues to be. And that's something that the announcement of the national second tier is starting to, to re-grasp. And thank God, Bill, it's in our lifetimes and we're going to get to see it. Um, hopefully, uh, the next thing we see in our lifetimes before we become old greybeards is promotion. And <laughs> and who knows, Bill, we might be seeing your hand, lift up the old toilet seat above your head one day in the not too far distant future. <laughs> Look, you're, you're spot on, and, and you really expressed those emotions well in terms of 
you know, your father-in-law and um, his experiences. And it was the experience of so many migrants mm. in this country that mm. it was that one moment, that one afternoon, where they felt a part of Australia. You know, it was a different Australia back then. It wasn't so much a multicultural Australia back then. Um, it was a uh, it was a country where people were struggling to express themselves in an open and honest way, and football was one of one of those ways. And um, and so you know we need to reward and recognise um, their contribution to football and to the country, um, which we are so proud about. And you know this is it's a proud day for for Australia and for football. Yeah, it sure is. Bill Papstergiotis, chairman of the great South Melbourne Football Club, Hellas, of course, um, and speaking on behalf of all of the clubs that have advanced and the clubs that will continue to form what will in the future be truly a football pyramid. And we're seeing that leadership uh, with James Johnson and some uh, great decisions coming out of Football Australia um, in, in this time of, uh, of excitement in football in this country. Bill, thanks again for, for joining us. We're, we're really grateful. Uh, we will talk to you again um, as, as this all plays out over the next 12 months and then into the future uh, as, um, as the, the competition starts to take shape and, um, and we, we get firm uh, kick-off dates and, um, and we know more about the, the men's and the women's side of, of the competition um, and, uh, and, and just uh, watch the excitement, Bill. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss this um, seminal and significant day in football for us. Not at all, mate. It's our absolute privilege. Well, after the break, um, there's been shockwaves going around the football world for lots of other reasons. We've been watching this one bobble along um, in the Premier League. We've seen points deductions in the City R with no less than Juventus. Uh, this time it happened. The sort of Damocles crashed down on the neck of the Everton Football Club and they're now sitting firmly in the relegation zone. What does this mean for the other clubs in the spotlight? Manchester City, Chelsea, others. Um, what does this mean in terms of the the, the Premier League's uh, power play against the government uh, and their independent uh, body that uh, that they'll be uh, formulating and have already announced to, to oversee uh, regulation in that country? Next up, we're going to talk to Paul Joyce. He's the Northern Football Correspondent with The Times. Uh, he wrote an excellent article uh, dissecting it all. Uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, what he believes that it means and what we can expect for the future. That's next on box to box Hey, Edge, it's time to talk about our friends at Chemist Warehouse. Now, for the last few months, you've been telling me every time I book about Chemist Warehouse when you get home that's going to be one of your first stops now you haven't been in australia for very long the burning question on everyone's lips is have you already made your visit no i haven't but i've only been here less than 24 hours so uh, as soon as we finish the show um <laughs> it's about dinner time isn't it i think i'll jump out the car and on the way to dinner i might just swing by chemist warehouse and uh load up that uh, medical kit that i travel with the world with which has been a bit depleted all right, can I give you a few suggestions? Yeah, you can, absolutely. What are you okay. Doing? All right, well, you're back in Melbourne, so you're bound to get some hay fever. We're still in the middle of spring, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed a bit of it floating around, and uh, as usual, at this time of year, it gets a bit windy in Melbourne, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Well, load up on the Demerson Allergy Plus Hay yeah, Fever that's Relief. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Eight, in, the, in the cart. Yeah. Absolutely. 80 tablets, twenty two ninety nine. That'll last you till you go back. Now, you're going to need a little bit of help adjusting to your sleep patterns again yeah, because you are the... Yeah, that's the one. Wagner Health Melatonin, 30 tablets for twenty four ninety nine. And, you know, I know you do like to travel in comfort at the pointy end of the plane. So. Well, I don't, actually. I was, I was at the back of the bus because I, I like to, you know, save a bit of cash these days. <laughs> and um, 
Uh, oh, it's actually that melatonin stuff. I was watching Sex in the City 2 uh, movie on the plane, and uh, that gets a good go in the uh, in the movie. So I thought, yeah. if they're using it in the movie, it must be good. Yeah, see, that, that's it. Like, if, if it's if it's not good enough for the Sex in the City girls, then it's not good enough for anybody. Now, um, where I was going, though, with that, um, you know, a little jibe, which I knew wasn't true, uh, is when you come back from those long-haul flights, you do need to ease those joints a little bit when you get off the yes, plane. Yes, you need to go for a bit of a walk, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and then you need to rub the physio creme in the jointies I was talking about this last week. Jointies, I haven't heard of that. What is it? Oh, it's fantastic cream. You just rub it in and it just, so it's just really got those really deep therapeutic massage therapies uh, within the cream that just makes you relax, feel better, gets those muscles nice and warm. $26.99. Now, Edge, uh, I know you want to get fit and healthy when you're back, so sports nutrition, you're going to save on that at Chemist Warehouse as well. Bondi Protein Co-Vegan Vanilla, one kilogram for $37.99. And the Vital Strength High Protein, that is a great deal of 1.5 kgs. $59.99. And you know, Edge, I, I just say it every week, you hear it everywhere when you're back in town. Chemist Warehouse, you know what they've got, the great savings. Every day. Every single day of the week. Chemist Warehouse, why pay more? Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and uh, we are now going to delve deep into what is a very, very murky story that has so many ripple effects going around, not just the uh, the English football pyramid, but uh, uh, there are watching briefs from around the world on the fallout from this, uh, uh, because uh, when the Premier League uh, uh, starts to take decisions of this magnitude, then it brings into play other conversations uh, around international sport for other clubs that are involved in uh, in the speculation of uh, of uh, potential punishment. Um, we only remember too well the Super League story that was around a couple of years ago. But we'll get to the nub of it to start. And, and the man we're going to talk to next uh, uh, is the Northern Football Correspondent for The Times. We talk to Henry Winter often on this show and his compatriot in the, the Northern Climbs is Paul Joyce. And for the first time to box the box. Uh, welcome, Paul. How are you, mate? Morning. Um, well, morning to me. Yeah. Yeah. All good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. So um, I, I read your article and I mean, the, the headline, Everton could be punished again if the latest accounts don't add up. So can can you, uh, we all know uh, Everton's had a 10 point points deduction um, and we're aware of the, the numbers and the accounts that uh, uh, that have been published of the, the disparity between what uh, they were officially allowed to lose and what they actually did. But talk to us about this next layer of the story that you set out in, in your article about Everton's next set of accounts coming under fresh scrutiny. Yeah, well, basically, um, I think that basically the story is that um, just because they have had a punishment for um, accounts over the last three years, that doesn't prevent them from from that rolling on in effect. So what happens is the, the profit and sustainability losses are over are over three financial years, um, and that keeps moving all the time. So the, the last financial year comes off, and the newest financial year comes on. So Everton will uh, will submit their accounts for financial year year twenty twenty three by March of next year. And if there's big losses in those, then they're at risk of um, another punishment 
which is a bit of a sort of new development because the Premier League rules around this have been um, unclear, I would say. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, the Premier League confirmed yesterday that it is a, is a is the case that you can be um, in breach in, in consecutive seasons. So that will be a worry for Everton because the losses threshold is 105 million. In 2021, I think the losses were 120 million. In 2022, the losses were 44 million. Now, adbacks can and things can be taken off this, but um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they comply again next year, and, and obviously the ramifications of not doing so. Um, we've seen over the past past few days are, are now. Um, you know, perilous, perilous for, for, for any sort of Premier League football club. Um, must admit, I thought that the, the punishment was overly harsh to be deducting ten points when you consider that Portsmouth in 2010 actually went into administration and they were only deducted nine points. It seems, a, yeah, a disproportionate was the word Everton used, and I sort of agree with that. It's, it feels a disproportionate punishment for for what they have done, um, and that's now going to be subject to a to an appeal by the club. Um, that will probably be tabled this week. The appeal, and then it goes to a new panel, and then we get this all over again. So, yeah, it's um, difficult times for Everton um, off the pitch. Ironically, it comes when you know the manager Sean Dyche has done. A lot to sort of improve things on the field. He, 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 you could see in the last sort of six, seven weeks that an identity of the team is um, starting to come to the fore. They're a lot more difficult to beat. Um, you know the methods that that he's or, or, or the sort of the methods that he wants his team to play to. Uh, you can see those now that Everton's in more and more performances and. And so there was a lot of optimism building around Everton up until sort of a week ago, and now this the punishment is, is you know like like the pin in the balloon really, and you know it'll be interesting to see what happens from here on in. With the uh, with 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 Everton's appeal, obviously they're they're going to cite a number of the things that they originally set out to the panel. They um, they said that you know cited COVID, they cited player acquisitions that didn't go the way that they'd hoped the sty cited the investment in the Bramley Moore dot. Like do do you think there is any there is any realistic possibility that at the very least that they could get a points redu- a reduction in or even get it thrown out entirely? I think it's very difficult to say really because in the in the report from the commission that was published alongside the, the punishment on Friday you know, it, it, it's 41 pages and it, 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 you know, it takes some reading to get through because it's quite complicated in, in places. But the one thing that um, that wasn't explained was how how the panel arrived at the 10-point penalty. So it, 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 there's no sort of um, part of the report which says, well, we think 10 points is fair because of this, this and this. They rejected a lot of Everton's mitigating factors, um, 
know, when you when you look at the sort of Portsmouth case of a club going into administration because of you know financial issues and they got nine points, it does seem odd to me that Everton are hit with a ten point um, punishment. I mean, one of the members of the panel of the independent commission um, was a man called or there's a man called Nick Igo, and he was West Ham's finance director during the Tevez Mascherano affair in 2007 when West Ham broke Premier League rules um, to sign those those two players, if you remember. And there was a, there was a big um, sort of legal case around that. And, and West Ham weren't deducted points. They were given a big fine in that instance. So again, that feels like the way Everton has been treated seems a bit you know, doesn't sit certainly to the level sort of ten points. It, it doesn't seem doesn't seem right to me. Doesn't sit comfortably that we got that, those ten points. And um, so it's really, there'll be a new panel will take charge of the whole the whole case. Um, they'll take charge of the whole case, and and you know it's really you know difficult to to say whether or not there will be any fresh. Um, you know whether there will be a reduction in the, in the punishment. Um, there's no new evidence permissible, so it's just the same argument um, that Everton presented the last time. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's you know it's impossible to say really how how they will react, whether they're influenced by the the outcry that, that's followed, whether the you know. They're not swayed by that at all. But you just listen, listen to, the, to the the arguments again, you know, a new set of ears, and, and whether they feel differently. It's obviously Everton are hoping that there'll be a uh, reduction in the points points value because they 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 felt that a transfer embargo might be um, the best punishment. They didn't think a sporting sanction of ten points was was right, and. Um, yeah, so they were on, on Friday when the news came out. They were, you know, shocked and stunned and, and reeling from the development. Really, maybe a transfer embargo would be a good thing because uh, part of the reason they found themselves in this position has been this mad shopping trolley dash uh, under Mashiri to try and quickly get Everton established as a quote unquote top um, top Premier League team. Is there? Any sense from the Everton fans or beyond that, you know, despite the harshness of this prop, this punishment, they've really brought it on themselves and that, in fact, uh, Everton have been a relatively badly run club uh, in recent times, particularly with the, uh, the, the the transfers of player X and player Y who were mentioned in the, uh, in the yeah. proceedings. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that's been clear from the, the Everton supporters. Um, I've been unhappy with the way the club has been run for a long time. I mean, obviously there was a lot of protest last season, uh, which led to the 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 board not being able to attend matches from sort of January, and then the previous board resigned at, at the end of the season. Um, and that's an important point as well because um, Denise Barrett Baxendale was the CEO. And Grant Singles was the chief finance officer, um, and they all all these 
things that have happened with, with the spending and the saving costs and player X and player Y have all happened on their watch. But because they um, we dined at the end of um, last season, we, we weren't prepared to speak at the hearing on everything's behalf. And I don't think that would have helped the case because you had two people who were immersed in the minutiae of what Everton were doing. Suddenly their, their knowledge wasn't available to Everton to argue um, their case during the hearing. It was left to other people to pick up the slack, if, for want of a better phrase. So I think that didn't help Everton's case in the actual hearing that the, the people who were in for these decisions were no longer at the club and were no longer willing to speak up on the club's behalf. So getting back to your point about the fans, I think the fans have been very proactive over the past year in terms of saying we're not happy with the way that the clubs have run. Um, in the Sheely era, especially in the first years, was sort of defi- defined by, you know, reckless spending, um, a managerial chain, different sporting directors, um, not for, not one consistent, um, you know, um, train of thought on how we want the team to be, which 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 inevitably come when you change the manager so as frequently as he as he did the chopping and changing leads to well we want our own players in we're not doing it like that so you know there was, was a point where you know Rafa Benitez for example would probably have had you know, players in a squad from five different managers so that doesn't help um, you know results on the pitch I think in the la- what what we've seen in the last few years under the Sheeny is a rec- recognition that the club has been sailing close to the wind so they've tried to rein in the spending a little bit um, and they've tried to sell players for Charlton and Anthony Dawson were pro- primarily sold to try and help the profit and sustainability figures and try and get them below the threshold. The point that the Premier League made and the Commission made was that while we sold a Richardson, for example, in June 2022, so that could go in that year's account, they then spent again and that's where the, the, the sort of um, mitigation fell down that Everton had been open with the, with the Premier League and how they were um, spending the money. The Premier, I think the Premier League's view was, okay, you, you keep money by the sale of Richardson, but you shouldn't then go and spend 34 million on Amadou Onana, nine on James Garner, 15 on Neil Mope. You should have, you should have crunched that spending a little bit more to ensure that you got, you got within the threshold. So, we have seen a reduction in the spending, but for the Premier League and the Commission, there has still been too much spending. Yeah, and um, just a, a sort of slightly cynical last question from me. I mean, if this was going to happen to Everton, is this the best season for them to have this in? Uh, you know, it's arguably the you know the bottom three is already looking pretty settled. Everton don't need to do a great deal to to get themselves out of the relegation. Although, you know, clearly they'd be, you know, in a you know, much better position without a 10-point deduction. But, you know, if it was going to happen, is this the season that, that they, could have, they could have picked a better one, really? 
Yeah, well, that, that point's been made by a lot of people since the punishment, and, and I think the other point is that the charge was first brought in March of this year. Um, the Premier League tried to expedite, expedite proceedings and speed them up so it would affect last season when Everton stayed up on the final day, um, but the, the, the commission couldn't get together in time. Um, I agree that Everton have it within, within the capabilities to sort of overcome this 10-point punishment and, and climb the table. I think, as we sort of discussed a little earlier, I think Sean Dice has made a lot of strides with the team, the team identity of the team. I think from the fans' point of view, the sort of punishment will galvanise them behind the club. I think it will almost make the club stronger in a way. I mean, Manchester United arrive at Goodison on Sunday and I can only imagine what the atmosphere inside the ground is going to be like. It will, it will be, I mean, Goodison at its, at, its, at its best has the capability of sort of leaving teams trembling a little bit and, and it'll be really interesting to see how Man United cope with that on, on Sunday. I think my, my only concern about the sort of, it's a great season for them to get the temp deduction is that by by saying that we're almost normalising the normalising the punishment, which and it's a punishment which I feel is is over the top in a way. So that's my only reservation about sort of going along with that point, because maybe six points or something like that would have been, you know, or or a few points and some suspended would have been would have been fairer, um, but. Yeah, I do believe Everton will be safe, but I think it will be more difficult, more difficult than than people making maybe maybe making out. I think it will be, you know, those early season games when they weren't quite at it, and, and we lost to um, Wolves and Luton at home, and also Fulham. Um, you know, they're big. He's not got those games now to come back to in the second half of the season. So, yeah, I, I, I do think they'll, they'll be OK, but I think it will be, you know, a bit of a slog. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting reflection on that point and the, and the subtleties of it as well. Uh, before we let you go, um, Paul, we, we did reflect on uh, the uh, the potential um at the top of the the show before you joined us for uh, for the Everton punishment to uh, to be considered something of a canary in the coal mine, uh, and uh, you know is it beyond the Premier League to have taken a sanction out on a, a club that doesn't have the financial muscle of the likes of a Manchester City or a Chelsea who have been under the spotlight for a lot longer than Everton has um, and and perhaps go for the low-hanging fruit uh, um, that can't fight back um, as uh, as the others, in particular City, have done in the past. Yeah, that, and that's another, that's another um, you know, debate that, that sort of flourished in the last few days. Um, along with that is, is the, the fact that, you know, there's been a lot of talk of, of English football getting a you know an independent regulator to run it, which is obviously not what the Premier League would want. And so this is the example of the Premier League bearing the teeth and saying, "Well, we can run, we can run football. We don't need anybody to come in and and, and help us." I think the point you make about the power of, of City and, and Chelsea is a good one because what we hear is that. 
Mississippi case could still be sort of, you know, a couple of years from, from being being heard properly because of the, the legal challenges and the legal, you know, route that that that, um, that clubs may wish to go down. I think because Everton's was one breach and we thought they, that they had complied initially and their, their sort of position has been that that it, it's very much um, an accounting issue is the reason why they've not complied. Um, I think they were they were happy to sort of... And also they've worked with the Premier League for two years, Everton, so they've opened the book to the Premier League. And, and I think they they felt that there was a good relationship with them there, so we're happy to proceed straight away, um, rather than rather than try and delay things legally. Um, but obviously, the, the the scale of the punishment for one breach has shone a light on what could happen with Manchester City, who have 115 breaches outstanding, and also Chelsea and the the stories that have come to pass in recent recent weeks. My own feeling is my own feeling is we're not gonna we're not gonna see City in in a hearing room for a considerable period of time and that will frustrate the other teams in the Premier League. Um there's a Premier League shareholders meeting tomorrow which is probably gonna be quite feisty. Um so yeah I think everybody's eyes are on City and Chelsea now but there's no great expectation, I would say, as well, that that's going to be heard imminently just because of the legal complexities, as you mentioned, Ben. And just one, one other thing that was in the report um, from the Independent Commission, it said that it didn't feel like a financial punishment was right in this instance, in the instance of Everton, because of the wealth of their owner. And Farhad Bashiri, and and that that's quite that's an interesting you know statement on, on one hand because of, we all know the wealth of Manchester City and and Chelsea now to a lesser extent with with Todd Bowley, um, but the idea that that um, Bashiri is so wealthy that. Um, you know, a financial settlement would, would be would, wouldn't matter to him. Just feels a little bit odd in a couple of ways. A, he, he spent seven hundred and fifty million on Everton. He's now selling the club because he's not got any more money for trying to sell the club. He's not got any more money to put in really. But secondly, the the profit and sustainability regulations actually in the first instances curtailed Everton's spending to an extent because they couldn't spend just what they wanted. They had to try and they've had to try and stay in um, these thresholds. Now they've not they've not managed to do so, but it, it's not like Everton can just could have just gone out and spent five hundred million in in his first season. They had to believe it or not. Now when you look at the maths, they, they, they couldn't just spend what they wanted. That's part of the. That, one of the issues with profit, profit and sustainability regulations that we that we do limit those who have wealth. And previously, you know, there was obviously the relationship with um, Alicia Rosmanoff, 
and that Monsieur his business partner, which which was um, which basically ended with the Russian invasion of, of UK, Ukraine in 2021. So there's been parts of the report that, that appear a little bit contradictory. Um, there's parts where you think Everton are planning to write. So, you know, getting back to you, your point earlier, I think it would be interesting to see how the appeal panel, you know, looks at, looks at it all and whether there's going to be a reduction. And that has to be heard before the end of the season so that it affects the current uh, Premier League standings. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so many uh, murky ripple effects, isn't it? We haven't even begun to talk about the, uh, the the relegated clubs and their reaction as well. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it, it's really fascinating uh, to to go, you know, right to the ground and get get uh, a, a genuine sense from somebody who uh, um, is right in the middle of this and talks to the locals and and um, understands uh, both the blue and the red side of, uh, of the Mersey uh, points of view. Uh, uh, mate, we'd love to have to have you back on again as this plays out. Cheers. See ya. Bye. Lovely. Thank you, mate. Paul Joyce, Northern Football Correspondent with The Times. Okay, stick around. World Cup Corner is next. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Oh, Edge, now you're finally back home. You're going to have to wheel that barbecue out and get uh, some uh, of that uh, flavour-packed meal profile back into your diet. I know you you know you, you do enjoy the stir fries and all of the Asian yeah, food slipped, you're away. Slipped over to my brother's uh, house uh, in uh, lovely Eaglemont on Sunday night, Rob, last night, and he whacked on a couple of eye fillets on the barbecue, and nice. he had the Hoyt herbs and spices out there. Got a bit of paprika. Uh, it was it was all happening out there. A bit of bit of chili as well. A bit of mustard, dried mustard seed as well. So. See? You got it all. I don't think I need to go any further. I mean, once you get all of those uh, spices mixed together with my favourite four-colour peppercorn mix and some of that Hoyt's Grand Himalayan rock salt in there, whether it's an eye fillet, a little olive oil, or whether it's uh, uh, exactly a lamb roast, or even your favourite chicken. And vegetables, of course. You get some zucchinis, capsicum, and uh, asparagus. Some spices over those as well. Himalayan rock salt, so good. I think it's um, it's just like it gets the chance to, to draw on all that sodium from the, the Himalayan mountains uh, gently over time. It's probably, you know, millions of years old and just sort of uh, distills all of the best uh, minerals out of uh, out of the salt. That's probably why it's healthy for you. And if you're going to, you know, eat the appropriate amount of salt in your diet, uh, which we all do need an appropriate amount, not too much, just enough. It's like, it's like um, you know, uh, the, I don't know whether you remember Milton the Monster, the cartoon, you know. Um, from when you were a kid, a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't remember because it was a very old cartoon, but the ingredients were like six drops of essence of terror, five drops of sinister sauce. Now, you don't want too much because if you do, then you're going to end up with a very dangerous mix, and that can happen with herbs and spices, so you just got to get the right amount. Okay, Hoyt's Value Packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's Spices, yeah! Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all.
Yes, this is Box to Box. This is World Cup Corner. We've been a little bit indulgent in our time, so we're, we're going to bring it home with a nice, tight conversation on one of Edge's favourite topics of uh, of football in Southeast Asia. So, Edge, um, you went to a game. Uh, tell us about it. Yes, Rob. Obviously, with the expanded World Cup, there's a new sense of optimism and hope in um, Southeast Asia, where I spent a bit of my uh, year working. And uh, I was in Thailand last week, and I went to see... Thailand play China at Raja Mangala Stadium. In their group, they need to finish like Australia. Uh, in their group, they need to finish in the top two to go through to the next phase of qualification and give themselves a chance for automatic qualification at the World Cup. And the way the draw worked for Thailand, they had China at home, a must-win game. The, the second spot in this group is going to be um, definitely between um China and Thailand, so they must have they must have beat, to beat China on home deck, and they were favourites leading into the game. Got a goal ahead, but then uh, succumbed in the second half, and China went away with a two-one win. So some incredibly disappointed Thai fans at Raja Mangala Stadium, really seeing the uh, missed opportunity uh, that that brings. Uh, Thailand's already under pressure in this uh, in this uh, World Cup qualification phase. Obviously, for Australia, we're just expecting go through without any problems but some of these countries like malaysia and thailand and vietnam they, they're huge games massive games and derek um as you um come to terms with the expansion of the world cup and and you hear um, nations like this uh, aspiring to become uh, uh, world cup countries and participants um how, how do you feel that the the rest of the world observes um the the emergence and rise of some countries that have been genuinely considered minnows for, for um, well, pretty much the entirety of football's existence? Oh, I think it can only be seen as a, a good thing, really. Uh, maybe there's there's a divergence amongst fans who would only want to see the uh, the cream of uh, world f- football playing, playing at the tournament. But I, I feel like, you know, it's actually been a year since... Uh, I think literally a year edge since you were over in Qatar, but that's um, that you're about bet you that's thrown by pretty quickly. And uh, obviously there were some amazing stories there, whether it was Morocco or Saudi's win over um, Argentina. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, and and a year on edge. I mean, think about that. <laughs> how quickly is this? How quickly has this year gone? And um, you know, so much water under the bridge already. But can you believe it's been a year since you're over there? Absolutely not. I can't believe it's been a year. And um, this time last year was a it was a pretty epic uh, time uh, getting ready for uh, the arrival of all the Australian f- fans and families of the players and so forth. So, yep, um, well, great memories, uh, Derek. And we'll be back there in January, the Asian Cup, which is uh, an emerging and um, significant football event these days, the Asian Cup. Obviously, a huge opportunity for Australia to uh, potentially go all the way and, and get another trophy in the cabinet would be well, something to celebrate. Well, it? Edge, um, we, we talk about your travels a lot and, and um, you know, the time that you spend in Thailand. I'm going to set you a task to to get us a guest from Thailand to, to talk oh, to us about... That's easy. Okay. So uh, should, I'll, set you, I'll set the bar pretty low, of course, but um, um, somebody who, uh, who can engage with us and talk to us, because I've talked about it on the show. It's probably been a while since, but when I was uh, travelling the world as, as a young uh, Qantas flight attendant back in the, uh, the the late 80s and early 90s... I, I, I wish you would colloquially describe your time as a Qantas flight attendant as the appropriate terminology is trolley dolly. 
Oh, yeah, thank you, H. Yeah, that, that was me, of course. Uh, but but I, the point I was making was back in 1990, the culture shock that I had oh, in yeah. Thailand What wasn't the fact that the exotic smells and looks and food. It was the fact that during the 1990 Italia 90 World Cup that there were all these portable TVs on every street corner of people watching every single game. And there was a full colour magazine published in the, the national, the newspaper, every single day on the World Cup. It just amazed me just back then uh, to, to uh, how passionate the Thais are about that. Well, whenever Thailand's playing uh, football, uh, it's impossible to get a taxi. It's yeah. impossible <laughs> to get a motorbike taxi because yeah. they're all gathered around uh, the screens mm. in various restaurants and bars. Well, thank you, Derek. Uh, another great show. Looking forward to stoppage time a little later in the week, mate. Yeah, can't wait. And uh, to you, Michael. We'll Thanks, Rob. to you soon. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you have a moment, as we ask you every week, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your favourite shows and make sure you subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.